Hey everybody, this is Brandon. And for this episode, we actually will be doing something different as we will be resharing a podcast episode released in November 2015 from the Creativity and Healthcare podcast, which is hosted by Matt, Dr. Matthew Taylor. As this episode features Dr. Stoffen Algleed, in which they discuss systems constraints on creativity in academia and associations. And I felt that this discussion brings up many issues that need to be brought up to start thinking about and implementing solutions to how we can improve these constraints. Now, the link to the Creativity and Healthcare podcast, along with the video to this interview, are available in the show notes. And we are excited to speak with Matthew and Stoffen on the Healthcare Education Transformation podcast in the very near future. Now, without further ado, we present this episode from the Creativity and Healthcare podcast. After a brief word from our sponsor. Are you a third-year physical therapy student that excels on tests when you have study guides, checklists, and deadlines? With all of the information available about how to prepare for the NPTE, it's easy to get disorganized and not feel prepared going into the big day. NPTE Prep Success is an online course that provides PT students easy-to-use study guides and step-by-step guidance through the NPTE preparation. To learn more, visit kylericeprep.com. Thank you again all for your continued support, and now for the show. You are listening to Creativity in Healthcare, hosted by Dr. Matthew J. Taylor, editor of the textbook Fostering Creativity in Rehabilitation. In this podcast, we explore creativity as it relates to how you can foster your own creativity and that of your related healthcare organizations. Healthcare reform hasn't happened yet, but working together, let's explore how we can nurture the next new growth in healthcare delivery. Welcome to Creativity in Healthcare. I'm Matt Taylor, your host, and today's show four of our podcast series, and I'm excited to have my best friend actually be our subject today, and that's uh, Stefan Ugly, Dr. Stefan Ugly. Uh, Stefan and I have known each other for 14 years, and they've been 14 good years, and I'm really excited because today we're going to talk about the systems limitations within both academia and the professional associations and how that impacts creativity in healthcare. Stefan has an amazing background. He was born in Osterson, Sweden. Uh, grew up there, then came over to the States um, to get his physical therapy degree, has worked with world champion athletes. He was quite the marathon runner in Sweden, and uh, he had his own private practice for a time, eventually decided he wanted to uh, explore some other avenues. He went through the entire Feldenkrais series of development, which is a four-year certification program. So now he's a Guild-certified Feldenkrais practitioner as well as a licensed physical therapist. Later went back and got his master's and his PhD. Has been teaching at a number of different doctoral programs in physical therapy and presently is teaching at Nazareth College in Rochester, um, New York. And so... In addition to that, though, Stefan has written extensively. He's more recently finished an extensive yoga therapy training process that complemented his other works. He might talk about that a bit in the interview. But basically, he's he's seen both the European and uh, the United States programs for academia and development professional um, 
systems that, as he'll explain, might create some limitations for us. And so that's what we're going to look at today. But before we do that, what I'd like to do is he contributed two chapters to my textbook, Creativity, Fostering Creativity and Rehabilitation. And in his uh, chapter on this very topic, he began with a quote from his, his favorite band, his favorite musician and creative artist, and that would, of course, be none other than the boss, Bruce Springsteen. And so what I thought we'd do is we'd, we'll intro the show with uh, the quote that he used, and, and this is how the quote goes. It's from the song No Surrender by Bruce Springsteen. And then the song begins with, we busted out of class, had to get away from those fools. We learned more from a three-minute record than we ever learned in school. So let's go learn something with my dear friend and colleague, um, master of many things, and particularly, he loves the how, not the why. So here comes Stuffin, and first, cue up the boss. You got it, and that's the boss bringing us in. So I got to ask you stuff, and I introduced you ahead of time here. And what we did was we just played Bruce's lick there from No Surrender. The we busted out of class, had to get away from those fools. We learned more from a three-minute record than we ever learned in school. Some people might take that as a slam against academia and everything else, but but give us an, an idea of why you would begin a chapter with that kind of a citation rather than some rigorous scholarly thing or, you know, what, what is it that, 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 that sparked in you? Well, basically I'm a big Springsteen fan. That's what really oh, sparked okay. in me. <laughs> but, uh, I, I, I think academia tends to be, especially for the rehab professionals, we tend to be very theoretical. Uh -huh. And having been in the cl clinic myself for a good, I don't know, 13, 14 years before I entered academia. Uh, I, I teach from patient, from patient experience, from, from the knowledge I got from the patients. And, and I think that's where the value lies. However, in academia, that is not valued as much as having a PhD. Mm -hmm. And... And, and uh, unfortunately, I have, in, in physical therapy, I have worked with some PhDs that have never really touched patients outside of their internships. They never had a desire. They never had the, the thought they wanted uh -huh. to, to do research. And, and I think there's a practical knowledge. And, and I think as a whole, we're, we're downvaluing practical knowledge in, in academia and in society at large to some extent. What do you mean by practical? What? Uh, hands-on knowledge, learning through your hands. Uh, movement by chance, since we're both physical therapists. Movement by chance, yes. <laughs> there, there was resistance when in the health and wellness class, I decided that we need to do at least half an hour of movement instead of two hours and 20 minutes of lecture twice a day. There, there was resistance, and I actually even had a faculty member say that if, if I was in your class, I would refuse to move. I would refuse to do any of these things. Oh, wow. 
so there so there is a huge value on theory uh, but not as much on on the practical aspect um, and do you see that spill over in the other healthcare professions too i think I, you mentioned in your chapter about you know dietitians don't eat much <laughs> the, you know uh, well i i, I think I, I think the focus is on on patient care and not on self care. Uh, it's, it's not. It's the do as I say, not as I do, oh. to, to a large extent, and and that is what we value. You know, and and to some extent, it's a system where we are locked into those values. Now, I look at academia as a whole, and you know, if if I teach a, a theory class, a lecture class. For every hour that I teach a week, I get one credit. But if I teach a hands-on class, a laboratory class, a practical class, I need to teach two or three hours to get a one credit. So it's built into the system that hands-on practical work is not as valuable as theory, even in the hands-on professions, such as physical therapy, such as nursing, or anything else. So we devalue it, and, and we are really telling the students that it's not as valuable. Yeah, and, and uh, usually, you the, usually the tests are a higher percentage of the grade than the theoretical test than the practical test. And the practical, yeah. And so in the, in the chapter, you did a great job of kind of giving the the reader an orientation of how this might have come up. You know, kind of the the development of academia through time and and. Uh, you know, versus the the vocations where where you were out being a craftsman or you were out doing a skill. Uh, you know, you, you talked about that in some detail. Yeah, to to some extent, and and if we look back at academia, you know, a large percentage of schools way back when were religious, and and part of their whole idea was to develop the whole to develop the person to develop morals and so forth, uh, which is something that we really dropped now. I mean, it doesn't exist anymore. Right. In my opinion, uh, but that also limited the creativity because you ha- in a lot of the schools you had to follow a certain dogma, you had to follow the religious dogma, and, and if you went outside of that, that was not really popular. Then, of course, in in the eighteen hundreds and so the the vocational schools became big, where you actually then produced someone who had a profession. Now, the healing professions were usually gone from uh, in families. Oh, from, parents, from grandparents and so forth. So you really grew up with the healing professions. It was a calling for you. And ever since you were young, you were part of it and you kind of absorbed it. You have the guilds, the guild systems. And you learn by doing rather than sitting. Exactly. In. You learn by doing. But of course, we look down upon the, the guilds and we look down upon the vocational schools. And and we, we held the theory to higher standard or to, to higher we, we held it in higher, uh, we looked upon it in a higher level. Right. And, and I know when I went to school in Sweden, you know, it was always, we only have nine years of mandatory school. And then we have, you know, most people go another two, three years. But we always looked down upon the kids that spent the next couple of years to become welders or painters or electricians or something sure. like that. That's the same over here, isn't it? Yeah. That, that, yeah oh, exactly. that's the other bus. You know, that's Yeah, that's the other bus. Yeah, right. good point. That's the other bus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they take off for the vocational school and yeah, yeah, exactly. So but then physical therapy, for example, to get into the university, to get into the academe, we had to then follow the rules of academia to a large extent. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and that devalued the hands-on work in many yeah, and, yeah, and you you mentioned with like say the development of the AMA and the the Flexner report and that where we kind of put constraints on what would be considered as legitimate healthcare yeah. and that right and so so I, and then as as the other ancillary professions come in they've kind of found themselves in that same constraint which puts bumpers on what can be looked at what can be considered as legitimate yeah yeah no the flexner report did a lot of good things i mean it standardized medical care to a large extent and and there was some really crazy stuff going on but it also limited i mean it limited minorities it limited women uh and it limited a lot of the alternative approaches uh, to medicine but medicine was and still is the the pinnacle of healthcare people tend to think you know the, the the physician we have a hierarchy in healthcare so of course the other professions and i mean physical therapy we were accredited by the medical profession you know they were they were in charge of our education and they ran our departments too <laughs> they ran our departments too yeah right. and, and not only physical therapy but most of the rehab professions right. so for us then to try to get to that level we tried to model medical education mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, good and bad. I mean, again, I mean, we're doing some great stuff. We're doing some, some fabulous research and so forth, but there are side effects to it too. Sure. Yeah. And in your article, you outlined kind of those points of, uh, what happens in the application process, what happens in the student success pro you know, if you're going to be a successful student, what do you have to do? And largely, you know, if you want to kind of touch on, those trends again it's not to, we're not bashing the system but we're saying what the constraints are within the system that that are going to that are going to limit creativity at this point and so you say you know between the students having to have the grades which meant they have to you know if you kind of talk about that a second about that kind of the succession and yeah i mean if, if i look at the students and right now i'm actually going through applications for next summer for our next cohort and and we have 450 applications uh we're a freshman at mid school so we will probably not accept more than maybe 10 out of those 450 oh. and we we have a scale and th that we score them on and and reality is the gpa science gpa and overall gpa are the most objective things to look at uh for predicting what though <laughs> for well the science gpa predicts it's the best predictor that we have if you're going to pass the boards. Okay. Which is and the that, and that's not test. a hands-on no. related test. It used to be, but that was a little bit too subjective, I guess, and yeah. time-consuming. So now it's just a multiple-choice test. Yeah. But it, it's hard. You know, I, I, we give some extra points for work experience, for volunteer experience, and then we have an unclassified category where we can give a couple of extra points. But, but the main weight, out of a 15 point scale, 10 points is still GPA. Okay. So it, it's because it's, it's there, it's objective. It's, it's quick to look at instead of sitting down and, and reading through lots of essays, you know, it's, it's right there. And some schools go basically only on GPA. Mm -hmm. uh, so what does the GPA say? The GPA says that you're good at imitating. You're good at spitting back the information. You're good at the predictable stuff. Uh, but, you know, like, like you talk about and, and what's in the book is that now we're dealing with uncertainty. 
and not with the predictable stuff anymore because we're moving into a post-normal world. And um, if we look at our patients, now we're dealing with chronic disease. Right. We're dealing with lifestyle issues. We're not dealing with, you know, you have A and therefore B will make you better. It doesn't work like that anymore. So we need these creative students. But a creative student will probably not get straight A's. Right. Because their mind works a little bit different. I, I brought up in the book how when I first started teaching, my idea was that if we have a lab practical, I'll give you yeah. you know, 90 or 95%, but the last 5%, you've got to take a chance, do something creative, and I'll give it to you whether you can pull it off or not. Right. And within 30 minutes, you know, they were up complaining to the other faculty members that you can't, I can't do that. If I do everything right and if I imitate everything you taught me, I should get 100%. And yeah. I have to scrap the whole idea. Yeah. And that's what it still is. It, it's, it's about imitation. It's about reproducing what you have been taught. Right. Yeah, and that's Alfonso Montori, you know, who you know was in the, the first couple of interviews of this podcast. And he, he, like, he, he terms that reproductive education, right? You just reproduce what was dished out and therefore your success but then when we look like you say with these chronic complex conditions uh that all of us across all the healthcare professions are having to look at it's it's not just your ac1 it's not just your you know it, it there's so many factors that that we have to be able to juggle and so so once the student gets in they get through the the hurdle of the the gpa and now they're in class and like you say the resistance to the the 5% creative expression that way. Um, but what else do you, when they're in class and you, they start to go into like a practical situation, what, what kind of behaviors do you see that restrict their, their creativity when they're sitting with their first client and that what, what, how is that constrained based on, on that? Uh, it's, it's kind of interesting because our students in their first year, they actually take care of people for their health and wellness needs. Okay. And I actually see a fair amount of creativity in the first year because they haven't been taught all the right stuff. Okay. <laughs> uh, but the further along they get, the majority of them becomes more and more uh, standardized. Mm -hmm. they, they become more and more alike, uh, partly. And, and we have on-site clinics here that are run by faculty for the students. And, and I think they do some to please the faculty because this is what I've been taught and, and this is probably what they want to see. But, but I do think to some extent that creativity is going down. I mean, we, we all ooh and ah if we see a student that take a chance and do something, or most of us ooh and ah, not right. everyone. Uh, but but there, is, there is a point where, you know, we also grade them on, on certain things that they that they can do certain procedures and so forth yeah so there's kind of that tension between the rigor of kind of safety and appropriateness and you know but at the same time there isn't they, they don't have a book to open up and look and see how do i deal with this you know 61 year old diabetic amputee smoker with parkinson's yeah. right you know that 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 doesn't exist in the in the literature so to speak yeah and if and if i take a lot of time to have them deal with that amputee smoker diabetic 61 year old uh, which is which is interesting that's not going to be on the board no and i gotta ensure that the students pass the board exam too 
So even faculty that do want to go more outside and do interesting things to some extent are limited in that there's certain content and, and most of the content is, is directed. I mean, I'm, to some extent, I'm lucky in that I get to teach health and wellness to the students, which is not, not yet as directed, although they are moving in that direction too. Or that part. But if it's on the board, we got to make sure that they pass the board. So we are limited time-wise, because uh, there's only so much time we have the students. And there sure. are certain procedures that they have to, to learn. There are certain theories that they have to learn. And uh, Right. And you did a good job of illustrating then the constraints that the board process has, right? It's, it's our various healthcare boards are chaired and served by the experts who are teaching what they teach, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so, yeah, it just keeps winnowing in like that and all of a sudden, where's, where's, where is, you know, and and some people, I guess, would argue that, well, in 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 the student phase, there really shouldn't be the creativity. It's, you know, kind of getting your chops, doing your scales, doing, you know, those sorts of things. But it seems like, as fast as healthcare is changing right now for all of the professions, whatever we're learning taught by people that, like you said, quite often haven't been in the clinic for years or ever, you know, um, there's going to be a big gap, isn't there, between the, the students coming out and then what they meet in reality as far as having 20 minutes with the patient to do all their, their things, you know, it, it's. Yeah. And, and, you know, we, we talk about the board and who writes the questions. Yeah, it's the experts, probably 60% of them. That, those are the latest numbers I saw uh, are faculty members. And, and faculty members then are successful in the system that they were brought up in. And they are experts in what they, what they teach. Right. But they're not in the clinic. And, uh, you know, so much, I mean, I hear it all the time that, yeah, well, this therapist did really well with that, but that's really anecdotal, which means it really doesn't have any value. Right. <laughs> it might not you know, even happen. <laughs> yeah. And, and the board questions have to come out of the most common textbooks. They're probably running at least two or three years behind research. So if there's any new research, that can't be on the board exam. So oh, while we lag, you know, while we bring that in to class, maybe we can't put too much emphasis on it either because it might go against what's on the board exam I see. Uh, it's because that comes straight out of the textbooks. Sure. And, and you mentioned the research. Uh, you had some interesting insights into how the, the various factors on research between you know the, the doctoral student matching up with whoever they're chair is and the funding process and that can you maybe talk a little bit about how yeah i mean i i I can bring up my own experience and i got really lucky i i entered a phd program that had just started Uh and they knew me quite well there and and the chair was pretty open and said you know this might be the only phd program you can ever complete because we're new and you can do whatever you want to basically but reality is most programs, uh, you'll have a lot of people applying. The professors will then look at and say, well, I'm interested in this student or that student, and, and they match them up. But the professor also needs to, to publish. So they will pick something that they know a lot about, naturally, okay. and that they're already doing research on. 
So you're, you're, if you come in with a really, really creative idea that is way out there, very cool, it'll be hard to find a professor that says, well, this aligns with my research activity, or this is something that we can get an NIH grant for, because it's so creative and it's so outside the norm. So right. and it's the same if you apply for a grant and it's way outside the norms, who decides if you're gonna get a grant or not? The experts in the field are already sitting out on the branch of the tree pretty far out on their own research. And they say, oh, this might threaten my own research or I don't recognize this. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a system that has so, it's, has so many branches and so many tentacles and they all interact from how we select the students to how we select the faculty to how we select who gets to publish to how we select who gets to uh, get the grants and get to be the PhDs and, and all that stuff. Even to get tenure as a PhD, you know, you have a group of peers that have already gotten it because they did the traditional thing. Oh, wow. What a, yeah, the dog so chasing. It's, it's, all in, it's all interweaving into each other and, and that makes it difficult to change the whole system. Um, it's kind of healthcare, you know, you and I talked about it. I mean, we put little band-aids on it all the time, but it's almost like we have to start from scratch. Yeah, because I mean, if we're really going to reform by, by definition, it's not a little shift here and a little shift here it's it's looking back at that and and you did such a great job in the chapter outlining then how that just that those tentacles as you say go right into our professional associations the same people are chairing committees running specialty sections specialty boards right so absolutely we just keep perpetuating those strengths yeah. So, and, and, and I mean, at this point, this fall, we're actually writing up every 10 year, we have to be accredited. And this fall, we're writing up our accreditation documents. And, and they are also very strict. And one, one of the big things is to, to report graduation rates, you know, and, and pass rates on the board. And it's the same thing there. I mean, if, if we decide, I mean, to some extent it's, it's decided you need to have this many sciences and so forth to get into a program. Mm-hmm. But if we decide, oh, you know, we would like more artists. We would like people with an arts background. Well, if that means that for the first few years our, our board rate goes down or more students drop out out of the professional phase, then our accreditation will kind of nail us on that. So it's not going to be encouraged. And also people looking at the program will say, well, they don't have the pass rates on the board, even though we might be at 80% compared to the average, which is like 94. And out of our 80%, 50% are doing some really, really groovy things. Right. But that doesn't really matter. It, it's the overall board rate. And of course, the school then is looking at retention rates and they say, well, you know, if you start dropping students, then we don't get the tuition dollars. Right. So even, so, even that is, those tentacles are intertwined with everything else. Too. Certainly. Yeah. So, so out of this constraint and crisis, what are, what's our opportunity? What, what can we? Our opportunity is basically that you and I take over the whole educational system all over the world. Oh, I like that. I like <laughs> Well, I like that too. Although, although we will be pretty busy and yeah. <laughs> no naps for us. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, 
Uh, but I, th I think there is opportunity. And, and I will also say that almost every year I get one or two students, one more likely than two, <laughs> <laughs> that come in with some interesting background. And, and since I'm reading through all the different applications for this school, I, I look for people that have second careers and I can usually get one or two that are borderline, uh, that have an interesting second career that we feel will balance out the class and will bring something unique to the, to the program. Uh -huh. and, and I mean, I've seen some fabulous former students do interesting things such as Jamie down in Tucson. Right. Uh, I've had some other students that come in with a, with a yoga background, for example, or some other interesting background, martial arts uh, and, and military, other, other second careers. Right. And while they're struggling in the program, because a lot of times they don't feel like their background is acknowledged, uh, because, and, and this, I think this is especially for yoga, since both you and I are into yoga and, and it becomes real popular. I've, I've had students with yoga background really being disturbed because they're not encouraged or allowed to really do much from the, their yoga background while they're in the on-site clinics because we want to see other things. Well, and they feel like they're really being devalued. And, and I tell them, I say, you know, while you're in here, to some extent, forget about what you're doing in the yoga world. Just reproduce, because what's important is that you get your degree, you get your license, and then go out and do the really cool things. Do the expressive stuff. No different than, yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. And, and they are doing some interesting things. So I, I think we see slow infiltration into into the communities, but, yeah. but it's, it's very, very slow. And it's how do we keep encouraging these students with different backgrounds to do it and to support them and not crush them while they're in school because some of them are being crushed. Right, right. And I, yesterday I had an interesting experience that kind of gave me some hope too. And that is uh, I was invited to do a, a lunchtime presentation down at ASU, Arizona State University. Uh, Dr. Jennifer Huberty, uh, invited me and she's in the ASU um, health and fitness department and she also invited in a, an old colleague of mine uh, Dr. Linda Larkey who just got a over two million dollar grant to study Tai Chi and um, she brought along several of her senior students and a, a bunch of students and we had over 30 people in the room several physicians and what happened was I got to talk about what yoga therapeutics was from uh, a shared language. So it wasn't just doing asana and measuring therapeutic exercise influence, but we, you know, we talked about the whole spectrum of that. And there was a, a big enthusiasm within the room, lots of questions, and we could look at this and we could do that. So it's almost like we can, we can, circle in and around through through different avenues and and break out of our binders of having to stay in our silo right and and the drive then because they acknowledge they oh the neuroplastics the you know all, all this science that's not necessarily in our silo right and so so if we encourage listeners to to maybe look a little broader with a broader lens of of who can you affiliate with to 
to make these things come forward that, you know, that might be one way of. Uh, yeah, I think that's, a, I think that's a great way of doing it. And I'm also telling my students that, you know, read outside of the physical therapy journals, read outside of your field because creativity is bringing in something into what you already know and make something new out of it. And if all you read is are, are the PT or the rehab journals, you're not really bringing in anything new. You're, you're just reinforcing what you already believe. And, and we all like to do that, whether it's in politics or religion or whatever, we like mm -hmm. to reinforce sources so that we become more sure about what we already know. Right. We, you know <laughs> it's kind of a crazy idea, but, but that doesn't lead to creativity. No. And, 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 you know, I, I talk a lot about social connectedness, uh, talk a lot about the spiritual aspect in health and wellness. We talk about the emotional uh, aspects. So, so we need to start looking at that because really that's where a lot of the research is going today. It's, it's not about necessarily the, the purely technical aspect anymore. Right. But we know that especially, and again, we come back to people have lifestyle issues today and we have to deal with it. And, and I, I believe that we will get there. And I, I believe that what we do at the university level is phenomenal in that we give them a, a very solid background in anatomy, in, in the physiology, in the neuron and so forth. Right. And I think we can set up a very, very nice framework for them. You know, I, I'm all about setting up frameworks. I like the framework idea. Right. But I believe in an open framework. And I, and I believe because there are certain basic, basic concepts that the students have to have. Yeah, and, and, and I see the students coming out of the universities compared to a lot of the students that come out of non-university trainings, that they're more grounded, they're more solid in that. However, we tend to close the framework a little bit too much for them. And we need to, to make them understand that, you know, here's, here's a starting point. Now develop your own style. Moshe Feldenkrais used to say that, you know, you develop your own handwriting. Hmm. It's the basic, develop your own handwriting. We yeah. should all do things a little bit different depending on who we are. Right. And, and uh, while I see the non-academic trainings have a lot of openness, they don't have a framework in the same right. way. Exactly. So where's the balance between having an open framework, having no framework, and having a framework that is too closed. Right. Yeah. And we need to find a balance somewhere in there. Yeah. And I think that uh, maybe for our listeners, a, a good example out of our experience is what we've seen happen with that closed Facebook group of uh, rehab professionals that are yoga oriented. So it's, it's, it's grown from 12 people to we're right at 640, I think now. And where we're exchanging, so it's a, with technology, that's another way we can find our community, what we're passionate about, and then yeah. begin to share ideas and share literature so that we're staying, we have that framework, and then the group in dialogue tests that framework, looks for, for the holes and the openings and, and yeah. what we call the bridging, right? So, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so if uh, people want to connect with you in the future, if they want to invite you to explore this topic further or whatever, is there a way to get a hold of you? No, <laughs> I live in a closed framework. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> you're an academic and you're in your ivory tower, right? Yeah, exactly. 
we don't like him outsiders to come in here. No, I don't. I don't blame you. <laughs> no, they can reach me at my email address. Okay, and that is Staffan S T A F F A N at somatologique.com. Somatologique. That's okay, and we'll put that up on the on the video and in the show notes as well. Um, and I'd love to have people contact me. Because, yeah. because I, I learned so much from people that are contacting me. Uh, yeah, and you, you work across the arts, the visual and performing arts. You, yeah. I mean, you've got, you, you know, he really does, folks. He, he's, he's a connector. He, he gets and he, and he loves fresh new ideas and that sort of thing. So kind of to close out, um, what, what creative things are, on, uh, are bubbling up on, on your desk or around you there these days that what's kind of the next thing you're going to, Wow, what is my Play. next thing? I'm writing. I'm writing a new book. A new one. Yeah, about yoga for active adults. Oh, okay. But I'm okay. I'm taking a bit of a. I'm doing some kind of combination of yoga and Feldenkrais, where it's really about exploring, uh, because yoga too can be a closed framework. Sure. Is the asana this way or that way or do this or do that? Yeah. But it's more about exploring, and. Okay. and what I, what I call the three keys to it is, is identification. Know what you're doing already. Right. And then differentiation. Do it in a different way with awareness. And then integrate it. So in, that's into your whole life, right? Into your whole life, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, that's part of what I'm working on. And then, you know, there are workshops in Sweden and... You know, going to Montreal and watching hockey and, you know, I, I have to say, I go watch hockey, I get a lot of creative ideas. <laughs> to, watch, to watch athletes at that level, mm -hmm. to see their flexibility, to see their vision, to see their skills. Right. Again, one of my favorite quotes from the Gita is, you know, yoga is skillful action. Right. And those athletes are skillful and it's a, it's a true inspiration for me. Um, but as far as creativity right now, I spend a lot of time on that book. Right. Uh, really working on that. Really, and, it, and it's good to write because then I have to really focus on, you know, get rid of some of the extraneous ideas and really narrow, yeah. narrow it down. Yeah. Narrow it down so that it still stays open. And that's the hard part, you know, to write it in a non-dogmatic way. So it's, it's great education for me to do it. Um, and then, of course, I get a lot of my creativity from doing movements, you know, whether it's yoga or Feldenkrais or, or anything else. Uh, yeah. That's where I get a lot of my, my kicks from. Yep, you're the how guy. That's how I introduced you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> how do you, why do, you do it? Do you do it? We don't care about the why. We care about <laughs> how do you do it. Exactly. And I really believe that, that differentiation is the key here. Right. Uh, differentiate how you do it, doing it in a different way, because then the nervous system and the whole organization has to relate differently. You, you then will have to perceive things differently. And I, I believe you perceive with your whole body. So by getting out of your habitual way, everything changes. Everything in your life will change, which also is scary. And I think that's one of the reasons why the whole idea of, of differentiation and getting out of some of your habits. People want it. People want to get out of their habits. But the habit that you know is 
is safer. That framework is nice and rigid. And it might... Framework is nice and rigid. It might not benefit you and it might bring you pain, uh -huh. but at least you know what it is. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's a great way to finish. So <laughs> thanks so much for your time. And uh, as I said in our show notes, folks, that, that's at healthcarecreativity.com. You'll be able to find the links to to get to Staffen directly. And in the meantime, go ahead and start differentiating a little bit in your healthcare and we'll see what kind of healthcare creativity we can all bring forward. So thanks very much, Staffen. Appreciate thanks, it. Matt. Yeah, take care.